So obviously, you know, we can't get to everything. We're going to cover chapters. I'm going to try to get through chapters 4 through 10. That feels a little bit like Mission Impossible, but we'll do our best. So as I skip things of necessity or say things that you want greater, clear, more clarification on, greater elaboration on, feel free to text that and we'll try to save some time at the end for, for questions, okay? All right, well, let's let's go ahead and, and do it. Let me pray, and then we will dive in. And again, as usual, uh, it's real casual. Feel free to get up and, and grab more food. Just, just you know, kind of make yourselves at home, and, and we'll have a good time walking through the text, okay? And there are more books over there, handouts if you need one. Go ahead and grab that. So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Oh Lord, we marvel at the fact that you have written the script of history. And Lord, you are not writing it as you go. Lord, you have written all things before time began. And Lord, we marvel at your plan that centers on Christ, that for all eternity there was a plan to to exalt your Son and to give your Son a, a group of people for whom he would die and purchase with his blood, some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And that this plan, this this unbelievable sacred salvation script, this drama of salvation would culminate in a kingdom and Christ being exalted and put on display, which would then transition to the new heavens and the new earth, Lord. And and so, Lord, I, I guess we all come with a sense of great comfort. We all come with a sense of, with great... Um, uh, encouragement that the plan, the ending, the, the happily ever after has already been written, O oh Lord. And what that does is give us great encouragement, great hope, great courage, O oh Lord. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. And Lord, and I do pray that one of the many effects of this, one of the many results of this would be more courage to proclaim your word to lost people. Lord, we are surrounded by, by hundreds, thousands of lost people, seven and a half million people in this metroplex, O oh Lord, and, and millions of them do not know you. So Lord, I pray that, that one of the, the, uh, evident, the, the, the fruit, the evidence, the results of this seminar would, would be bold proclamation of the gospel of Christ, knowing that the end has been written. Christ will be exalted. Christ is supreme, and all things are going according to plan. So, Lord, enable me, free me, O Lord, to be able to teach with clarity. Pray that you would use your word in our lives to strengthen us and to help us love and treasure your Son more than when we came in. We Thank you so much for this time together. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we all know the book of Revelation. We know it enough, anyway, to know that it is filled with bizarre and terrifying and bizarre and disturbing and creepy images. That's called apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. And strange and and bizarre though that language is, we know that the purpose of apocalyptic literature, with all of its fantastical images, that and and as distant from reality as those strange images may be, the reality is is that those strange images are designed to help us live in reality. those Those portray for us the way things really are. And the way things really are is that all of reality is the uninterrupted domain of God's activity. That's, that's really what the book of Revelation and apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is designed to do. Not only give us the roadmap for the future, but also to, to help us see, view life through a particular pair of lenses to see that God is governing everything that comes to pass. 
And so I, I love that. So we, we read Revelation and we walk away with the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control. God holds the cards. God pulls the strings. God will win it all in the end. And we've got the text to prove it. And you, you remember the, the purpose of, of why I'm doing this. I mean, we could be talking about all kinds of things, and yet we're here talking about Revelation. And, and you know, again, we could and should talk about marriage. We could and should talk about parenting. We could and should talk about using your finances in a way that, that maximizes, maximizing finances for the Great Commission. But we're here talking about Revelation, and, and why? Well, I, the, the, the reason is obvious is, is because not merely because the book of Revelation is fascinating and, and controversial, although it is that. Rather, I want this church to experience the blessing that Revelation promises for those who read it and those who hear it. Again, I mentioned it this morning. I've said it a couple times. Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that promises a blessing for those who read it and those who hear it. So, so we should take note of that. It all, it's also, as you know, the last book of the entire Bible, so it holds a, a special place of, of prominence. And so I really believe, I really believe that there is a, a sober-minded stability, a glad-hearted trust, kingdom-shaped priorities, a blood-earnest evangelism, Christ-exalting effectiveness that is and will be produced in our lives if we truly grapple with this book and feel the weight of this book. And so, in other words, I want this church, I want this church to experience the blessing that Revelation promises. And uh, just by way of review, we talked uh, last time about the purpose of, of the book of Revelation. Uh, what would you say, as you think about, okay, you know, the purpose of the book of Revelation, why it's in our Bibles is for this reason, well, what would you say? It doesn't have to be an amazing answer, it doesn't have to be the complete answer, but what would you say would be a reason or some reasons why the book of Revelation is in our Bibles? What would you say? Why? Absolutely. And, and, and what are some of the ways that it gives us hope, Charles? We know the end of the story. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a huge game changer, right? I mean, this is not up in the air. There's no question about it. It's like, well, you know, it's like there's chapter 18, but, but there, you know, it's just all blank after, you know, chapter 19 is blank. Like, well, we don't actually know what the ending is going to be. No, we do. We do know the ending. And that, that changes everything about the present, doesn't it? Vicki, what were you going to say? Only the Lamb can open the scroll. We're going to look at that tonight. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the emphasis of that is that He is of infinite worth and value, and, and, and He is the one in whom we place our trust. He's the one who will bring all things to come to pass. Yeah. What else is the purpose? What would you say? Gives us perspective. Yeah, and, and how so? Well, I can be going about my day, but know that my attitudes, my actions, my goals um, can have an eternal um, Absolutely. effect Absolutely. on others as well as on my Totally, absolutely. I, I appreciate that you say that because it's not like, you know, we can tend to distance ourselves so much from the text to be like, well, here's my life, but it doesn't really have anything to do with the kind of stuff I see in the text. No, no. Uh, the, what we do in life echoes into eternity. Right? And, and so, you know, our lives are on this, you know, on, uh, are, are part, they, you know, small though they may be, on the, on the canvas of God's plan of salvation, our lives are one of the zillions of, of many brush strokes on that canvas, and, and it does, and our lives do count for eternity. Yeah, that's really good. And so, Revelation gives us perspective, gives us that perspective. Good, yeah. It also brings more 
more sense to the apocalyptic texts of the Old Testament. Yes, it sure does, right? Because Christ is in the picture, mm-hmm. especially. Yes, absolutely. And there's so much apocalyptic stuff in the Old Testament, right? So there's this great continuity between what we see in the Old, what we see in the New, and, and what we see, and, and I think this is implied in what, you say, what you're saying, is that what we see is that we're talking about all one plan of salvation. Here's all one tapestry that's unfolding. Yeah, it's glorious. Did you have something, Jerome? Do you think it gives comfort to a persecuted church? Oh, man, absolutely, absolutely. Which, in fact, I mean, you think about it, there were a handful of the churches among the seven that were persecuted, and, and it's written directly to those, to those very churches. And, I mean, imagine, you know, being a, a persecuted church and then reading the book of Revelation on a Sunday morning. Imagine the, the encouragement that you would get that one day... You know, Christ will come and he will make all things be. He will abolish all enemies and, and make all things right. So, absolutely. Well well said. Yeah, go ahead. Give some definitions of a meta narrative scripture. wasn't there, it would be so open ended and yeah. give some gravity and give some definition. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. So the meta narrative, meaning the overarching storyline of the Bible, right, and, and Revelation has a strategic part in that. In fact, that's that's one of the things I like to say is that the book of Revelation is the unfolding of God's final chapter of the plan of salvation, right? So we've got this thing unfolding in human history. Well, well, Revelation uh, captivates and comforts battle wearied souls by unfolding the final decisive chapter of God's plan of salvation unfolding in history. In other words, you could put it this way. The book of Revelation spoils the surprise ending of history by revealing how it's all going to go down in the end. Uh, also, last time we met, we looked through the, the outline of Revelation. Again, chapter 1 is an introduction included in which is the glorified Christ. Chapters 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. Chapters 4 through 22 is all future. So if, you, so if, that, if that helps kind of orient yourself with the book of Revelation, everything from chapter 4 and following is going to take place in the future. And we saw in chapter 1, we, we walked through... Well, well, someone tell me, what is chapter 1 about? So I called it the introduction, and several things take place in chapter 1. But what, what's, what happens in chapter 1? What do we see there? Do you remember? You take, it, take a minute to kind of peek here. Yeah, yeah. So, so John, he, here he is, the senior citizen, breaking rocks on you know the island of Patmos in a chain gang, and all of a sudden, you know, he is caught up in this vision, sort of spiritual state where he's there, but he's not really there, and his body's there, but he's somewhere else. It's kind of this this crazy thing, and and Christ appears, right? And Christ appears in some unbelievable, in an unbelievable form, and. What's what's in, and so he gives his instructions to write what you're going to see and and you know verses twelve through oh what is that sixteen he unfolds this vision of the glorified Christ. Let me ask you this: What would be the purpose of seeing this vision of Christ, this glorious vision of Christ? Why is this so important that this happens in the first chapter of Revelation? What what function? What purpose would that serve in the course of the book? What kind of trajectory, what kind of lenses does this give you as you read the rest of the book to see this overwhelming, traumatizing, coma-inducing vision of the glorified Christ? Directly from the Word of Christ. Yeah. 
Absolutely, right? So we see, okay, whoa, this is the Christ that we serve, and this, is, this, this book is from him, because the title, Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revelation of Jesus Christ, this is a revelation that is from him. Okay, what else? What else would seeing this vision of Christ do? How does this shape the way we read the rest of the book? Oh, yeah, please. It kind of foreshadows that in the end he's victorious. It sure does. Absolutely. Seeing that about Christ, it's like, there's no way he can lose. There's no way. I mean, we look at this and it's like, well, that settles it. The book, the book is over after chapter one. Right? We, we see who Christ is and we're like, okay, you know, his garment reaching to the feet, golded around the chest with a golden sash, like a heavyweight championship belt of victory, and, and head and hair white like white wool, like snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze in the furnace made to glow, his voice like the sound of, of you know, uh, the ocean in the middle of a hurricane, and he has, you know, in his right hand seven stars and a sword coming out of his mouth and his face shining like the sun in its strength, and we see this and we go... He is victorious. He is triumphant. He is going to win the whole thing. So absolutely, it, it, it gives us profound theological lenses through which we read the rest of the book. And then we get into, again, still review here. We get into chapters 2 and 3 and the letters to the seven churches. And it's interesting, all of these churches were in what area of the world? In Turkey, in Asia Minor. So used to be called Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. And they're, they're actually written in the order in which you would send mail in that day. There was a postal route, and you would, you know, so it was written in that order. And it's interesting, these seven churches who are the direct recipients of, of this entire book, again, how this would work is they would not only read the letter to their own church, but then after that they would go on and read the rest of the book of Revelation. I mean, imagine that being what you did on a Sunday morning. I mean, we should like do that sometime. Just read the book of Revelation and 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 I mean, could you imagine those people just sitting there? It's like this is crazy stuff. Give them unbelievable courage in some sense, and some churches would give them great rebuke and, and warning. And oh yeah, go ahead. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. That yeah, there are way more than seven churches, e- even in Asia Minor. But the difference, that the reality is, is that, that in God's infinite wisdom, these seven churches in particular were representative of the kinds of churches and issues that the church would face throughout history. So that's why I think these seven were kind of selected in particular, not because they're like more important than the rest, but they would just be representative of of churches throughout history. And let me ask you this, by looking at these seven churches, what would you say would be the kinds of virtues that we would want to emulate and sins that we would want to avoid? So as you kind of scan the, the letters of the churches... Maybe, you could, maybe if, if churches is too broad, I mean, we could say, okay, what church would we want to be like? There's only a couple. What churches would we not want to be like? But maybe this, what would be the, the virtues of these churches we would want to emulate and the sins we would want to avoid? What kind of things did we see there? Do you remember? Yeah, vibrant, hot love for the Lord, which Ephesus used to have it, but they didn't anymore. He calls them to repent, and man, we want that, because that's, that's the ultimate thing that we should strive for, is that. Yeah, what else? Not being, Not being lukewarm, right? And, and Christ says, literally, I'll vomit you out of my mouth, and so that's a tragic spiritual state. Those people were people who thought they were okay with the Lord, and nothing could be further from the truth, and we definitely, definitely don't want that. Yeah, what else? 
resisting false teaching. Yeah, absolutely. And and there was plenty of that to be had in that day. And and Christ calls churches to hold the line when it comes to sound doctrine. Hold the line. Don't give in. Don't let don't let Balaam into your church. Don't let Jezebel into your church. Don't let that stuff spread. Yeah. What else? Absolutely. And, and there was much need for perseverance, wasn't there? I think of the Church of Philadelphia, uh, not Pennsylvania, but Asia Minor. And, you know, they were, there was, you know, the Jews had the seniority in that city, and they really gave the believers a hard time. In fact, there was even, seems like there was, you know, violence executed against them, and, and there was need for the church to persevere in the face of that. There's a lot of pressure, right? And, and, you know, people lost their jobs in that day for, for being a believer, lots of social ostracism, and so it was, it was risky and dangerous to be a Christian in that day. So yeah, they needed to persevere. Anything else? Having love and faith and service and patient endurance. Yeah. The Church of Thyatira. Yeah, Thyatira, love and faith and service and, and patient perseverance. Yeah, we need that, right? We need that. And, and, and you know, in, in so many ways, the church needs that. Because, again, here we are together, and, and, and we're going to see each other's weaknesses and immaturities, and, and, and that's going to be a challenge for us, and we need to persevere through those and be patient with one another through, do, through those. And so there, there is a good call from the book of Revelation to have those kinds of things. So, so there's, there's lots of, of really practical, powerful things in the book that we see. And now that brings us uh, tonight to chapter 4 and 5. We'll begin in chapter 4 and 5, um, which I'm calling the visitation to the throne room. The, vision, the visitation to the throne room. And here's what you have to understand about, again, when we get to chapter 4, everything from chapter 4 on is future, okay? So what John is seeing here is and will take place in the future. And what you have to understand is that chapters 4 and 5 are really central to the entirety of the book. And and the reason for that is not only because these chapters display the majesty of God in unfiltered, undiluted form, but also for that, but, but because these chapters, get this now, these chapters display for us at the outset that God reigns and rules over the events of history with absolute undisputed dominion. In other words, everything that's going to unfold in chapters 6 through 22 happens, it, it flows from these two chapters. So these two chapters here, they're, you know, in, in many ways, the epicenter, the nuclear core reactor of the entirety of the book. And so they're very prominent in that way. And... Uh, let's begin in chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. In fact, since it's short, I, I'm going to just take the luxury of, of reading the whole thing. Revelation 4. And again, do, do your best to use your God-given imagination to picture the kinds of things that are, are happening here. So again, so the, the letters to the seven churches, are it's completed. Chapter 4, verse 1 and following, notice what John says. He says, After these things I saw... And behold, a door having been opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard as of a trumpet was speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I shall show to you what shall happen after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, again, that is a little archaic and Shakespearean sounding, but it's the way of saying, like, indicating surprise, like, whoa, look at this. And behold, a throne sitting in heaven, 
And the one who is sitting on and there was one sitting on the throne and the one who is sitting was like jasper stone in appearance and in, in a, a rainbow was around the throne like emerald in appearance and around the throne were 24 thrones and on the thrones were 24 elders sitting having been clothed with white uh, white garments and on their heads they had golden crowns and proceeding forth from the throne were lightnings and sounds and peals of thunder and seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was as a clear sea like like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creature, creatures full of eyes behind and in the front. And the first living creature was like a lion and the second living creature was like an ox. And the third living creature had the face as a man and the fourth living creature was like a flying bird. And the four living creatures, each one of them had six wings behind and in the front full of eyes. And they do not cease day and night saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who was and the one who is and the one who literally is coming. And whenever the four living creatures shall give glory and honor and thanksgiving to the one who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall, literally shall fall before the one who sits on the throne and they shall worship the one who lives forever and ever and they shall cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power because you created all things and because of your will they were and they were Created. Amazing. Amazing. What did you notice was a word that was the most repeated word in the entirety of the chapter? What did we hear again and again and again? What word? Look at the text. What do you see? Scan it. Throne. Throne again and again and again. And what, and what is the theological significance of a throne? The seat of the Almighty. What's that? Presence Presence of God. Ruler. Ruler. Any other thoughts? Yeah, it, it very much indicates that God rules and governs everything that comes to pass, right? The one who sits on the throne is the one who calls the shots. The one who sits on the throne is the one who rules all things. It, it emphasizes his sovereignty. And you notice. Everything in the entire chapter is only spoken of in proximity to the throne. There's a throne sitting in heaven. One sitting on the throne, a rainbow around the throne, 24 thrones around the throne, proceeding forth from the throne were lightnings and peals of thunder, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, before the throne a clear sea like crystal, in the midst of the throne, around the throne were four living creatures. The four living creatures give glory to the one who is on the throne. 24 elders throw their crowns before the throne. So this is a throne-centered vision because God is a throne-centered God. This is this is incredible stuff. And what we have to understand is that the theological significance of chapter 4 is that it tells us that everything in this life and everything in human history and everything coming in the future flows from this throne. He, He rules it all. Every moment of every event that has ever transpired or will transpire in human history comes from this throne. What's really interesting is that every time, all the major 
scenes, visions, appearances of God when he is in the heavenly realm, guess what he's sitting on? A throne. Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, and here. And there is probably others too. Always picturing him on a throne ruling all things. So what we see in chapter 4 is its strategic place within the book of Revelation is to establish at the outset that God rules and governs everything that comes to pass. And, And so what we see here is... We see his sovereignty emphasized by the throne. We see his holiness emphasized in verse 8 as these four crazy-looking living creatures declare, just like in Isaiah chapter 6, his holiness, his holy, holy, holy is the Almighty. And then we also see, notice, that we see his role as the creator emphasized as well. Look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? What what reason does it give? Because you created all things, and because of your will, they were, they existed, and they were created. Now, why the emphasis on God as the creator? In fact, before you answer, I'll just say several times within the book of Revelation, it emphasizes God as the creator. So, So it's interesting that in the last book of the Bible, it repeatedly emphasizes God as the creator of all things. What's, what, what is the, what is the, oh, how would you put it? Uh, not the significance, but, but why, what do we gain? What, what, how does that help us by remembering that God is the creator of all things. Well, let me actually let me put it this way. Answer this question. Scratch that one. Why does the last book of the Bible emphasize so strongly God as creator? What, what do you think is the, signi- the significance of that? He's created. This book is about judgment. He has the right to tell us how to behave and to judge us. Absolutely. Absolutely. The one who created all things, he calls the shots. Right? He does with his creation what he wishes. We don't make the rules. He makes the rules, and he is. And, and the Revel- book of Revelation is clear to establish that. Well said. The book ends. The book begins with the creation. The book ends with the creator. Absolutely. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. What else? He can recreate. He can recreate. Absolutely. It's interesting how many ties there are between Genesis and Revelation. They are everywhere, all throughout the seven churches, all throughout the, the tribulation. And then when you get in the, new, the kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, there's all sorts of references to Genesis. It's really interesting. You could write a book, hint, hint, Tommy, on the connections between Genesis and Revelation. Maybe we'll co-author that. How's that? So what's interesting is that if God is the creator... He can and will be the great uncreator at the end of the age, and then he will be the recreator after he uncreates everything. Right? So he has the right and the power to do that. So he is the one who defined all things by bringing them into existence, and he has ultimate power over everything. And he is, being the creator, he is the source of quite new, breathtaking possibilities for his creation in the future. Powerful stuff. But then we get to chapter 5. Get to chapter 5. So more could be said. I mean, there's an eternity's worth of of material in chapter 4. But we get to chapter 5, and what's interesting about it is that it narrows in its focus. 
it, it focuses on, on God, and particularly it's the Father who's the focus in chapter 4, emphasizing his sovereignty, his holiness, his role as the creator. But then chapter 5 narrows some, and it begins to unfold specifically details of how God has fashioned his plan of salvation to unfold. And I don't know if I'll read the whole thing, but uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 1, John declares, And then I saw in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne a book, literally a little book, having been written on the inside and on the outside, having been sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a great voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to open its seals? And no one was found in heaven, nor on the earth, nor under the earth, to open the book, nor to look into it. And I began weeping greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book, nor to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion who was from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered in order to open the book and to open its seals. So we see here that there is this particular focus on a scroll. There's a a scroll. There's a little book in the hand of the Almighty. And the question is, okay, what is this scroll? What is this book that that is held in his hands and sealed with seven seals? Well, as you know, what's about to transpire is that no one is found worthy to take the scroll, but Christ alone is worthy, and he takes it, and he begins to open the scrolls. And as he does so, terrifying, cataclysmic judgments begin to unfold on the earth. So, so what is this book? I think what it is, it's the title deed of the universe. What it is, is the plan of salvation that, that and it indicates that Christ alone is the one who is chosen and the one who is worthy, the one who alone is worthy to unfold the final chapter of God's plan for human history. Only the slain And risen lamb, who is also a lion, is the one who is worthy to take the book out of the hand of the Father and to unfold the final chapter for history. And and so there's this interesting... Well, I'll wait before I get to that. But but notice there are seven seals. What's the significance of a seal on a scroll in, in the first century? What was the significance of that? What would a seal do? Personal and private. Personal and private. Now... There are seven seals. That's a lot of seals. What would that indicate? If there's one, it's like, hey, if it's not yours, you don't open it. If it's seven, what does that say about the document? It's super important, right? Understatement of, of the universe. I mean, that's exactly what it is. Like, it's like, this is so sacred. I could, I could open Steve's mail, and that would be a federal offense, and I'd go to jail. If I opened the president's mail, I don't know what would happen to me, right? I mean, there's, so it's a terrible, you know, off-the-cuff analogy, but we get, we get the point. It's like registered mail. Isn't that where, like, the special mail, you have to go to the post office? Nothing's going to work for this. Anyway, I'm just going to move on. But the higher number of seals expresses the importance and the significance of the document. And and this particular document is the final chapter of the plan of salvation that will unfold in human history. It's interesting in verses 2 through 4, no one is found worthy. Isn't this an interesting scene? So the angel declares, who is worthy to take the book and to open its seals? And that's what it sounded like. Who is worthy? John's kind of looking around. He's like, really? There's no one worthy? 
and he begins to weep because you know it that would you know it's like well, okay well th- then god's plan is not going to unfold and we might just think well okay well the father's worthy why doesn't he just open it but you see that's not the point of the vision under the terms of the vision it it had to be that unless someone is worthy to open the scroll god's purposes and plans for redemption will not be brought to pass you see the the point of the vision is to demonstrate and to display the incomparable worth of jesus christ that that's the point of the vision the point is to to do it in this way to indicate that christ alone is worthy to unfold God's final chapter for history. Did you have something? Right? Yeah. Does this have anything to do with like the kinsman redeemer and who meets the requirements of a kinsman redeemer? And Christ is the only one who could redeem all of creation mm-hmm. because he had become human, which is the pinnacle of creation, original <coughs> overall creation. He had paid the price. He was the only one. Who could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if that goes back to those kind of kinsman redeemer laws, then that scroll makes sense written on the inside and outside. Yeah, that's a that's a great. Did you hear the nature of his question? Is the emphasis having to be that he had to be both God and man, one who could kind of mediate and and function as a, you know, that that it explains the how the plan unfolds. That the nature of sin required someone who was perfect, and yet he had to be divine and human all at the same time. I thought that exact same thing, and I couldn't find one resource that said that. And I, I panicked, and I couldn't put it in my notes because I wasn't sure. I'm like, oh, I, I think that's where. The, there's my resource. Riches. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me uh, cite you. So I, you know. For now, I think something like that seems really appealing, and, and I'd like to explore that further. I think it has something to do with the fact that he is God who became man that had to, had to destroy sin from the inside out and conquer death in order to obtain the rights to, to be able to open the seal. I think something like that's the case. Thanks for making me, you know, uh, you know uh, be courageous there. So, yeah, please. Future vision, the vision that he's having of the future. Yes, chapters four and five are future. So he's like time traveling because he's interacting with an elder. Because the elder, like, it's not like he's just seeing. Because he. Which elder? Do you think it's Rich Kasky? Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You sorry, sorry, love. I I shouldn't have interrupted you. Go ahead. What was was that? I was just saying that it's interesting. I never thought about the fact that he's interacting. It's not like he's just seeing what's going to happen. But an elder actually says, "Weep no more." Yeah. It's like he's traveled in time. It's crazy. So that's apocalyptic <laughs> literature for you, right? It, it doesn't play by the rules of logic. Yeah, and it, so yeah, that's exactly right. So it's future, and yet he's able to interact with it in, in real time. I never thought about that. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. You said something the significance of it being written on the inside and the outside? Uh, I didn't. Uh, Rich mentioned that, but yeah, what are you thinking? Yet normally documents were never written on both sides, so the fact that it has voluminous contents, uh, I think. What, what have you? Did you kind of look into that before? Well, one of the things that, that I had seen for is uh, often when it would come to a redemption of land, they would basically say, for example, I own this land, but uh, I needed money. I sold it to Jared for a hundred dollars. We'd write that up, and so if, if I ever came up with a hundred dollars, I could get that land back. Or one of my kinsmen, if they were able and willing, then they could redeem that land for me. And they would put this on a scroll, roll it up. But on the outside, they had to write basically what this scroll was about. Mm. And it's about Rich's land, 100 bucks to Jared. And they would seal that up. 
And therefore, when the time came and somebody, Steve, is my kinsman redeemer, he could come along and say, I've got the 100 bucks. Here we go. They would break open the scroll and they would read the details and go, yes, you have satisfied. Meets the requirements. Meets the requirements. And, and therefore, you know, uh, the land then it reverts back to the original owner. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, good. It's really significant yeah. that it's even mentioned. It is, yeah. And, and that would have stood out to people. It's like Because that, that was unusual to have writing on both sides. And so it's really, I mean, everything about this is really, really significant. Um, you know, more to, to say. I'm skipping tons of stuff here. Uh, one thing I want you to want to draw your attention to, notice the titles that it gives Christ. The Lion from the Tribe of Judah and the Root of David. Where do we see the lion? So, so where is that terminology? What text is that taken from? Lion of Judah. Because that's taken from a Bible text. Do you know which one it's taken from? Genesis. It's taken from Genesis. Genesis 49. Do you know that there's a prophecy kind of crammed into Genesis 49? It's brilliant stuff. It talks about the one to come and to him will be all things and to him will be the obedience of all the peoples and, and that, that this one to come from the tribe of Judah would have the scepter and, and it would not depart from him and that he would rule forever. I'm like, well, who's that? Just wait and see. And then as Revelation unfolds, we find out more and more who it is. And then the root of David... Root of David. Where is that taken from? Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Right, Isaiah chapter 11. And you, you preached on that, Rich. And, and Isaiah... <laughs> Were you disappointed when you saw his name on the bulletin? Just kidding, just kidding. Inside joke, inside joke. Uh, so Isaiah chapter 11, which, which portrays the Messiah as the coming ruler who would reverse the curse of sin and establish his kingdom on, on the earth. And so it's interesting that these are very Messianic Jewish titles of Christ here. But again, notice it says that he has conquered... He has conquered, and, and that is what enabled him to have the right to take the scroll out of the hand of the Father and to begin opening the seals and unleashing the final chapter of God's plan for history. The question is, how has he conquered? Well, the answer comes in verses 6 through 8. And I saw in the midst of the throne and out of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, here it is, a lamb standing as having been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, that's crazy, having been sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took out of the right hand of the one who sat on the throne, he took the scroll out of his hand. And when he took the the book, the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the throne, each having harps and golden vials full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and open its seals. Why? Because you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here's the question. How did he conquer? What's that? He was slain. He was slain. He was slain. And it's really interesting because all throughout the book of Revelation, it keeps using that same kind of language that it says in chapter 12, verse 11, they overcame him, that is the saints overcame the evil one, they overcame him because of the blood of his testimony and they did not love their lives even when faced with death. There's this whole thing that the saints, that that the church 
that, that the saints and, and the plan of salvation advances through death and martyrdom. We are slain. We will be slain. But therein lies the secret to victory. We will, we will advance the plan by being slain. It's really an interesting theme that, that goes throughout. And so John blinks, and instantly this lion is transformed into, into a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb who had been slain. And so I think it's really interesting. He had been slain, but now he stands. His crucifixion, in other words, was the pathway to his coronation. His being slaughtered was the pathway to his supremacy. The lion conquered by becoming a lamb who, a, a lamb who was slain. And so... You have to understand, the people in Christ's day, we sort of criticize the Jews of Christ's day. It's like, they were, they were idiots. They were expecting Christ to come and be a king and you know, establish his kingdom and crush the nations. That is a perfectly valid expectation. In fact, they were right in their expectation that Christ would be a conquering king. They just happened to miss all the clues that said that there would be this thing that would happen in between, that he would be crushed and slain and seemingly conquered and overcome, and yet his death would be the very pathway to him being put, put on display as the king. So in other words, he would conquer through suffering and death. And then you notice the, the stunning song of salvation. Look at verse 9. The, they sing a song... And what an unbelievable song. Worthy are you to take the book and open its seals because you were slain. And here it is. You purchased for God with your blood some from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. It's interesting that we see in verses 9 and 10, the lamb's sin-bearing sacrifice had two results. Two results. Look at the text. It purchases souls. It purchased souls from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. He already bought those people. He already paid for those people. I mean, we, we, when we think of missions, we think of, oh, where is there a need? And we should think that way. But there's also another aspect of missions where we should say, okay, we should also go and find those who are purchased by the Lamb. I mean, it's, it, do you feel the different way of looking at that? Where is there a need? Let's go there. Let's go find those who have already been purchased by the Lamb, because he already paid for those people. He's not going, the Father's not going to go back on his son's payment. It reminds me of that story of the Moravians. Have you ever heard stories about the Moravians? These guys were in, incredible. In Bohemia or wherever it was, I can't remember the exact area, but uh, some of them were, were Czech, and there were these Moravians, and, and they, they heard about these, these islands in the South Seas and they wanted to go reach them with the gospel, but they couldn't go there unless they were slaves. So what they did is they sold themselves into slavery so that they could go to, this, to these islands and be slaves and share the gospel with other slaves and find the elect there. And as the, as the ship is, is launching out into, the, into the, the harbor, they raise their hands and they say, May the Lamb receive the reward of His sufferings. And what they meant was, Christ already bought those people. They're already there. They're already purchased and paid for. We're just going to go find them by indiscriminately preaching the gospel to everyone in the slave quarters. So, unbelievable stuff. The second effect is that Christ's death established, uh, Christ will establish those very people that he purchased into a kingdom. And notice what it says, they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth. Again, there's, there's you know, different theological perspectives that, that debate about this. 
this makes perfect sense in the trajectory of the Old Testament. The entirety of the Old Testament is looking forward to the making right of all things on the planet and the establishing of a kingdom on this earth, right? Adam and Eve, they were called to be the first king and queen, as it were, to have a kingdom on the earth. They blew it. And then the plan is going to come back in the end where, okay, we've got man, he failed, now the son of man will come and he will establish the kingdom that the first man couldn't. We've got man in God's image, he blew it, and now we'll have the image of the invisible God come and establish the kingdom that the first man couldn't. We have the first Adam and we have the second Adam, so this makes perfect sense that there would be a future kingdom on the earth. Everyone was looking forward to that. So, so here's these two chapters, absolutely strategic in, in the entirety of the book of Revelation. Again, these are the nuclear core reactor of the entire book. These are central to the whole thing, establishing that God is sovereign over all of history and that Christ, Christ is the one who is himself going to unfold the final chapter of God's plan for history. He's got the scroll in his hand. And for each seal that he breaks is advancing the final chapter of God's plan one step further. Christ is the one who unfolds human history. And so this is going to have incredible significance as we go throughout the book because over and over we're going to see things like it was given to the dragon to do this. It was given to the beast, who is the Antichrist. It was given to the beast, authority. It was given to the ten kings to do this. It was given. Who gave it to them? The Lamb did. The Lamb did. You see, the lenses, the theological lenses that chapters 4 and 5 give to us is that everything that unfolds, all the terrors unleashed by famines and plagues and wars and bloodshed and the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, all of those things that unfold is only because they were given the authority to do so by the Lamb. There's no way around that. So these chapters are central to the rest of the book. Let's put it this way. Even when Satan and the Antichrist are doing their worst, we see that the whole time they are playing right into the sovereign hands of the living God. So that's chapters 4 and 5. Any any questions about chapters 4 and 5? We're skipping tons of stuff. Any thoughts about that? And feel free, again, write down questions as we go. We'll try to get to those at the end. Charles, go ahead. No, I wasn't asking you to... Okay, now, that brings us, that brings us to uh, a next major ses- uh, section of the book of Revelation, which is chapters 6 through 16. 6 through 16, which is the seven-year judgment unleashed, a.k.a. the tribulation. So we've heard of this. But the majestic throne room vision launches us into the longest section of the book, chapter 6 through 16. And, and here's how chapters 6 through 16 divide up. It divides up into three major uh, sets of cataclysmic judgments. There's three sets of judgments. Each one is more terrifying than the last. Okay, and, and just so you know, well, and I'll, I'll explain these judgments in a little bit. So, but first of all, we have the seal judgments. That's the first round of judgments. And I don't know if those, uh, how those break down are in your notes. Chapters 6 through 8. Then second, we have the trumpet judgments. And then third, we have the bowl judgments. And again, each set of judgments are worse and, and, progr- and, and more destructive and cataclysmic than the last. Here's a few things about these judgments that I want you to know. Uh, a few features. Number one, I believe these judgments are literal. I believe these things are, are actually going to happen. Now, 
It's true, there's lots of metaphorical, symbolic, apocalyptic language used in these chapters, but that doesn't take away from the fact that these are still describing actual literal events that are going to literally happen on the planet to literal people because, because dozens of times in chapter 6 through 16, it repeatedly describes where these things are going to take place. For instance, it talks about this happened on the earth, this happened in the land, this happened on the inhabited world, this happened to those who dwell on the earth. In other words, the constant thing that we see in chapter 6 through 16 is that is that Revelation is, is telling us that these are literally going to happen on the physical planet. So this is not spiritual, sort of like, well, you know, this is this is, you know, gonna happen in the spirit world or anything. No, this is actually going to happen on the planet. Yeah. Is there anything that Yeah, you're right. And, and there are differing views as far as, you know, there are some perspectives that say, well, some of the things that Revelation describes already happened at 70 AD with the fall of the fall of Rome, or the fall of Jerusalem, sorry. And that's fine, and, and that's not the end of the world to, to have that view. The problem is, is that to make those kind of statements feels pretty subjective to me. Uh, I mean, to, to say, well, this fits with that. I mean, you have to do a lot of footwork to make this event in Revelation connect with something in 70 AD, and, and I just don't find a lot of validity there. Although, again, I mean, I would still be friends with those people, so it's not like we can't worship together, but as far as when it comes to that, I just think there's some things that you have to do with the text that, that aren't fair to the text. Precisely. I think everything is still future. So, so I take the perspective, uh, which is called the futuristic perspective, that everything in chapters 4 and following is, is futuristic. And again, there are mediating positions where people take, you know, some was fulfilled in the past, some of it's being fulfilled now. There's some views that say everything has already been fulfilled. It's called a preterist position, which is that everything, even the new heavens and the new earth, have been fulfilled. That's kind of strange. So, um, and they have their reasons for that. But I, I, I'm saying that, that I think the text lends itself to everything uh, being in the future. So nothing's been unleashed yet. Uh, another, oh, which brings me to my second sort of feature of these judgments. These judgments are future. I, th- I think the language demands that these things are going to happen in the future. I've got reasons in my notes for, for why. Uh, another feature is these judgments are sequential. In other words, they happen in, in chronological order. I think, the, not I think, the grammar definitely does demand that this is unfolded. You know, this, because all throughout are these grammatical markers that indicate sequential chronological events. And, you know, things like, after this I saw, after these things this happened, then I saw, then it happened, after these things. And so the grammar forces you to picture these things unfolding chronologically in in sequential order. Another feature, these judgments are increasingly catastrophic. So if you look carefully at the details of of these seals and and the trumpets and the bowls, you see that they increase in their destruction. So... 
in the seals, which we're going to look at in just a little bit, we see you know things like a fourth of the population is killed, and, and a fourth of this happened, and a fourth of this was destroyed, which is really terrible and awful. But then you get to the trumpet judgments, and then it says a third of mankind was killed. Oh, that's that's a bunch. So it increases in the number. And a third of this was destroyed. But then when you get to the bowl judgments, the last set of judgments, it doesn't make those kinds of like fractional marks. It just talks about this happened you know, on all the earth. The kinds of things it describes happens to everyone on the planet. So pretty, pretty crazy stuff. So they're increasingly catastrophic. And then another feature is these judgments take place during a seven-year period of time. The final three years of which contain the vicious activity of the beast, who is the Antichrist, and of Satan himself. This seven-year period leads up to and culminates in the physical, bodily return of Jesus Christ to the planet, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, to establish his kingdom, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. And, you know, places like... Um, you know, Daniel 9, verse 27, describes the, the seven-year period to come in the future. The three and a half years, which is described in three different ways in the book of Revelation, sometimes as 42 months, sometimes as a time, time, times, and half a time. So there's all sorts of ways that, that the book of Revelation indicates this time period. And then, um, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then these judgments are... Was kind of getting lost here. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then these judgments are known in other places of Scripture by the following names. The time of Jacob's distress, from Jeremiah 30. The 70th week, Daniel 9. The day of the Lord, Joel 1, Joel 3, Zephaniah 1. And then Christ actually straight up calls it the tribulation. So there's several different names for what chapters 6 through 16 unfold. So it's not like 6 through 16, it's like, well, this is the first we're seeing this. No, no, there are hints and allusions and foretastes and theatrical trailers of this all throughout the Old Testament, previewing, indicating that this is going to come and that Israel will be in the thick of all of it. And uh, Daniel chapter 7 and 9 both describe that there will be this figure on the scene of history who will also be in the middle of all of it, just wreaking havoc on the planet, who we know as the Antichrist. And just, again, sort of introducing, giving you a a big-picture view of chapters 6 through 16, even 18. Um, Listen to the the major players that are going to be on the scene of world history at the time. Listen to how they're described. In chapter 5, we have the Lion of Judah. In chapter 6, we have the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. It's very interesting, very very dramatic. In chapter 9, we have locusts like horses prepared for war with women's hair and lion's teeth. That's pretty cool. Chapter 11, we have the two witnesses. These are prophets who breathe fire, are killed, and rise from the dead. I don't think they actually breathe fire. I think there's indications in the text that that's a picture of something else, but we'll get there. Chapter 12, we have the dragon with seven heads and ten horns. That's Satan. Chapter 13 is the beast, also with seven heads and ten horns. That's the Antichrist. Chapter 13, the false prophet, also called a beast, speaks like a dragon. Chapter 17 and 18, the whore of Babylon, which is the religious and spiritual and economic center of the world at that time. 
Chapter 17, we have the scarlet beast, also with seven heads, ten horns, which describes this coalition of godless kings who unite under the reign of the Antichrist. So think about all these pictures and characters that we have. I mean, this is an apocalyptic drama complete with locusts and dragons and frogs and and beasts and a lion who's going to win it all in the end. So this is very exciting stuff. And also, you should know, and look, look in your notes there, uh, you see in chapters 6 through 20 that in Revelation are so many references and allusions and pictures and echoes from the Old Testament. Did you see that in your notes there? All kinds of different things. And so, you know, the book of Revelation is only finishing the punchline of what the entire Old Testament has been looking to and predicting for, for centuries. So, the the, the reality is, is if you really want to know the book of Revelation, what should you read? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. Because we struggle. We look at this like, well, how can we ever figure this out? What is this even talking about? Well, the, the, it's the slow and uphill climb to understanding the book of Revelation. But if you really want to get the book of Revelation, spend much time in the Old Testament. And, and, and it, will, it will really help you see what's, what's being unfolded. Because again, John is expecting, I'll put it this way, John is expecting you to import all of the theology of the Old Testament into the reading. That, that, this is to, that The entire Old Testament is to serve as the background of your reading of Revelation, which if you feel kind of like, I don't have, no, have any idea, I don't have, how, have any idea how anyone can understand the book of Revelation, it's, it's because we need to understand the Old Testament better to do so. So let's begin with, actually, let's, let's do this. Um, why don't we take a three, and I mean it, a three-minute <laughs> break. I'm going at 620, whether you're here or not, okay? Stand up, stretch your legs, and then we'll begin with the sealed judgments in chapter six, okay? Break, back in three. All right, here we go, here we go. All right, we begin again with the seal judgments. Okay, so we are launching in chapter 6. And again, this is the, the first set of judgments that are taking place. And again, the seals are the very seals on the scroll that Christ took out of the Father, out of the hand of the Father in chapter 5, verse 8. And, um, and, and, and here's the thing with each seal that Christ breaks, another manifestation of God's judgment is unleashed on the earth. So, again, these are things that are, are going to happen in human history, and these are going to be absolutely incredible. So, and, and by incredible, I mean terrifying. So, and here's what's really interesting seals one through four, they are pictured graphically as riders on various colored horses. So, let's look at chapter six, verses one through eight. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, Come! And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Keep track of the colors of the horses. And the one who was sitting on it had a bow, and it was given to him a crown, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard from the second living creature saying, Come, and another red horse came out, and the one who was sitting on it, it was given to him to take peace from the earth, in order that men literally should slaughter one another. And notice again the language, it was given to him, there was given to him a great sword. 
And when he opened the third seal, I heard from the third living creature saying, Come, and I saw, and behold, a black horse, and the one who was sitting on it was having a balance or having a scale in his hand. And I heard as of a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A measure of, oh, I always forget that word, is it wheat? Yeah, yeah, measure of wheat for a denarius, and three measures of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the wine, uh, the oil, and the wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard a voice from the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I saw, and behold, a, a ipas chloras, chloras, like where we get chlorophyll, chloroform, different things like that, ugly, kind of nasty stuff, picturing something uh, very pale and sickly, almost like the color of a dead body. I saw a pale horse, and the one who was sitting upon it, his name was Death. And Hades was following after him. And again, notice, it was given to them authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with death and with the wild beasts of the earth. So again, the first four seals are pictured in terms of, of riders on various colored horses. And, and we might wonder, it's like, okay, well, why are God's judgments pictured in terms of riders on, on horses? What, what is the significance of this? And, and this is not the first time that this has been used in the Bible, to use horses as pictures of God's judgment. Do you remember what book of the Old Testament had a, a similar picture? Do you remember? Zechariah, absolutely, yeah. I think it's Zechariah, yes, chapter 1 and chapter 6. So that the similar idea. And the language of using riders on horses, get this now, it gives the judgment a sense of personality. It gives a sense of personality. Again, you know, horses were, were instruments of war. They were instruments of victory. And so what this does is that this stresses God's personal involvement in the, ju- in the, the judgments. The terrors unleashed are not blind forces of nature, but these are, in fact, from God himself. And so let's look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So seal number one, we see uh, what color of horse? White, White horse. And, and what is it given? What, what does he hold in his hand? A bow. A bow. And what is he given to do? What does he do? He conquers, he, he goes out conquering, and in order to conquer. Some people think that this is, this is Christ himself, since he's you know, a, 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 on a white horse, and there's, other than the white horse, there's really no similarity between this and, you know, through, uh, to Christ in chapter 19. They really have nothing in, ta- in common. But what, what this is, is that we see that God is unleashing, and this is very terrifying, God is unleashing the human lust for war by allowing depravity to run its course. So the reality is is that God does put restraints upon the earth right now that, that, that prevent things from happening that would, that would keep from all, all hell from breaking loose, and yet the day is coming in the first seal that Christ, that Christ breaks, that Christ unfolds, that all that's coming to an end. Thirst for war, thirst for destruction. And brings us to seal number two, which is the red horse. The red horse. And, and the, he's sitting on there. And what was it given to him to do? Take away peace from the earth. And what would be the result of that? Yeah, war. Yeah, literally it says, in order that men shall slaughter one another. That's the word. It doesn't say kill, it says slaughter. 
And it was given to him. Again, notice, it was given to him a great sword. So these first four judgments, they all flow together. So we've got this thirst for for war unleashed. The, The next red horse is the overflow of that. Namely, this rider takes peace from the earth and turns into civil war so that people begin to slaughter one another. Seal number three, the black horse, verses five and six. Okay, we see here a black horse. He was sitting, the one who was sitting on it. And what did he have in his hand? A scale, right? And then we hear this voice from the living creatures. And, and they're saying, a, a measure of wheat for a denarius. Three measures of barley for a denarius. What, what was a denarius in, in terms of... like A day's wages. A measure of wheat for a denarius. Is that a good deal or bad deal? That's a, that's a really, really bad deal. That's a really small... I mean, I, I, I think a measure is, is you know, maybe, maybe a bowl, a small bowl of wheat. You know, three measures is just a, a bigger bowl for a denarius, for a day's wages. I mean, the, the prices are exorbitant. And so you see the connection here. When there's war, when there's bloodshed, what happens to the food supply? What happens to countries that are war-torn? Starvation. That, that's exactly what this is. So, so this third seal, the, the overflow and effect of, of war and, and bloodshed is that there is rapid starvation on the planet. Un- unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. And then finally, seal number four, we have the pale horse. Again, ipas chloras. Uh, and again, this horse is, 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 this rider is the rider of death. And again, his name is what? What does it say his name is? Verse 8. Death, who follows after him? Hades. And what was it given to them to do? Take a quarter of the population. That is astronomical. I just can't wrap my head around that. If that was today, right now, that would be 1,750,000,000 people dead. That's a quarter of the population. That, I mean, this is, just, this is unbelievable. And, and you could say, well, I mean, this is... Symbolic, symbolic of what? Symbolic of what? I mean, this is, this is destruction, absolute destruction. And so these opening seals, I mean, this is catastrophic, and, and we've got lots of, of judgments left to go. The fifth seal, notice how this connects. The fifth seal, in verses 9 through 11, I'll, I'll read the text. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar souls of the ones who have been slaughtered, same word as before, on account of the word of God and on account of the testimony which they had. And they cried out with a great voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, are you not judging and avenging our blood from those who dwell on the earth? And it was given to them each to have a white robe. And it was said to them, notice this, I'll I'll, I'll read what it says, The, the grammar is tricky. It was said to them that they should rest a little longer until their fellow slaves and their brothers who were about to be killed should be complete as they themselves also had been. (laughs) The grammar is intense there. But do you see what he's saying? What is he saying about martyrs there? Okay, their question is, how long is it going to be before you avenge our blood? His answer is what? What has to happen before their blood is avenged? What's what's his answer? More martyrs. More martyrs. martyrs. God has a number of martyrs, and when the last one is dead, the end will come. That's that's astonishing. See, See, the Great Commission advances on a sea of blood. See that? Martyrs. 
are the seed of the church. Yeah, Jerome. Are these martyrs asking the questions? Are they that have already been martyred, or are they going to... I think these are people martyred in this particular time period. So I, I, I can't work out all the details. These are people who I think come to faith during this catastrophic time, and and they are. And there might be divergent views that say, well, these are people who you know have died in the past, and or all martyrs of human history. That could be too. Um, the the time period, if it's people who have got saved and then were martyred in the tribulation. That's a pretty small time window. So anyway, I'd have to think about that. But I think there's a quarter of the population that's speaking that's avenging, you know, for God to avenge the, the quarter of the population that was just mentioned? Yeah. yeah the problem is there the yeah, that that there's probably a lot of unbelievers who died, so it's probably not the the billion of people, but but I think that among those there were enough people who who got saved and and these are people who are martyred in the future. That's my position for now. I could be wrong on that. I'm open to, to getting help on that. But, but regardless, you, you notice what what happens here. They, they cry out, full number of martyrs has to happen, and then the end will come. And so and, and again, the reason why I think there are people martyred in the future is for now anyway is because it flows with with everything with the three four previous judgments that have taken place. Thirst for war unleashed, uh, civil war, and then famine, and then disease. And so out of among those people who have died are are martyrs on the earth. So and again, this just gives us great hope that that um, that even when martyred, just like Christ was killed and conquered, when our comrades are killed, there is also a conquering effect of that. But then we see the sixth uh, judgment, which is catastrophic, cosmological disturbances, people filled with terror, um, verses 12 through 17. I'll go ahead and read it. This is, this is worthy of, of being read. And I saw when he opened the sixth seal, and a great earthquake became, and the sun became black as a sackcloth made of hair, and the whole sun became, or the whole, sorry, the whole moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree it's, is casting its ripened figs, being shaken by a great wind, and the heaven, and, and the heaven was torn in two, being rolled up as a scroll, and every mountain and island were moved from their place and the kings of the earth and the magistrates and the commanders and the rich and the mighty and every slave and free man hid themselves in the in the rock uh, caves and in the rocks of the mountains saying to the mountains and to the rocks fall on us and hide us from the presence of the one who is sitting on the throne note note this and from the anger of the lamb for the great day of their anger has come and who is able to stand so we see here, and it's really difficult to paint anything more catastrophic than, than this, and yet the book of Revelation succeeds in doing so with following judgments. But we see there's an earthquake. This is the first of three different earthquakes in the book of Revelation. So, I mean, by the time Christ returns, I mean, the earth is held together by band-aids and, and tape. I mean, this thing is really pretty rickety. Uh, we see verse 12, the sun is darkened, which speaks to an eclipse. The moon becomes as blood. Stars fall from the heaven, probably meteors and comets. The heavens are torn, so there's these, these great disturbances in the sky. Uh, mountains and islands are moved out of their places. I mean, just, you know, topologically, things are just, are just going crazy. 
And notice in verses 16 and 17, and this has always been chilling to me. Couple, there's several things in, in Revelation that are chilling, and this is, this is one of the most. Notice, men would rather be hidden and crushed by rocks than face the anger of, of the Lamb. Which tells me they know and they will know who's unleashing this. Somehow, some way, they're going to know this is from God. This is from God, and, and, I, and He is too terrifying to face, and I'm certainly not going to repent, so I'm just going to hide myself in the rocks and in the caves and, and let the rocks crush me and, so that I don't have to stand before Him and face His wrath, and so terrifying, terrifying stuff. The seventh seal is a, is a judgment that actually, here's what's interesting about the seventh seal. The seventh, the seventh seal doesn't unleash anything, actually, except for it unleashes or it provides sort of a portal or doorway that provides a way that, that uh, opens the door for the next series of judgments. So it doesn't unleash anything except for the next series of judgments, uh, which are known as the, the trumpet judgments. And so... Uh, yeah, so the, the, here's the, so we're, we're almost done with the first round of, of judgments. And then notice what happens in chapter 7, and we'll end with this. We'll, we'll end with chapter 7. Hey, not too bad. Four, five, six, seven. Four chapters. Not too bad. Chapter 7 is what I'm calling an excursus. What's an excursus? Tell me what's an excursus. Don't remember. Yeah. A little parenthetical. It's a little... Yeah, yeah, excursion. Yeah, it's a really fancy word for a rabbit trail. So John goes on a rabbit trail, and he describes the 144,000 and the great multitude. So you look at the text here, and I'll just I'll briefly touch on it. In verses 5 through 8, we see 144,000 people. Again, these are round numbers. 144,000 taken from the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I believe that these are literal ethnic Jews described as those who are sealed. I believe there's a future for the people of Israel that they, there will be a repentance, a, a repentance and salvation and restoration of the people of Israel that takes place in the future. I, I believe these are literal ethnic Jews. The reason why is because in verses 9 and following, we see a great crowd of multitudes from all of the nations and tongues. So there's this, in the text, there's this, there's this contrast between there's Jews here, and then there's people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people over here. And so I believe that in the tribulation, God will redirect a large focus back to the people of Israel as he draws them to himself in repentance, saving many. Because as you know, most of uh, the Jewish people in the world are are category have a category that rejected Jesus Christ. What were you going to say? Were you going to say something, Tommy? No. Oh, okay. So um, and so, what what we have here, and I'll, I'll s- summarize it this way: what we have here in chapters uh, chapter seven. Oh, and then actually, uh, notice notice what it says in verse. Oh, where is that? Um, oh, yeah, yeah, verse 13. Verse 13, after talking about this great multitude who comes from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, verse 13, one of the elders comes to John, who's watching this great multitude worship before the throne, and this angel comes up to John and goes, hey, who are they? What are you asking me for? You're the one who knows. Exactly. And then he goes on to tell them. So I, I love how that happens a couple times. Who are they? You know. Why are you asking me? Okay, here they are. These are the ones who have been clothed with uh, with white, uh, is it robe or garment? 
robe. Okay, yes, Dallas. Uh, these are the ones who have been clothed with white robes. Uh, who are they? Where have they been come? And I said to him, Lord, my Lord, uh, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come from the great tribulation. And they washed their robes and they made themselves white in the blood of the Lamb. So, so what do you see here? So these Jews and these people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people, they are those who come out of the great tribulation. Okay, these are people who get saved, they get rescued, and John, he gives us this foretaste into the future, showing us, showing us, showing us watching them worship before the throne in the distant future. What's his theological agenda? Why is he showing us this? Not only people who get saved out of the tribulation, but he points us to the future and we're watching them worship in the distant future. What? There's virtually no hope. He needs to give them a little bit of hope, otherwise they're done. Precisely. Precisely, right? I mean, it's like, if this is happening and all of these judgments are becoming unleashed, then, I mean, so there's this little snapshot to say, no, 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 no. The, even God is saving those who are, whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life even in the midst of these terrifying judgments. God is still saving people out of that. Again, we see most people reject, but great multitudes coming out of the tribulation getting saved. So it's incredibly, incredibly hope-giving. Jared, yeah. I have a question yeah. about that 12,000 from the tribe of Judah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I noticed that Manasseh is um, mentioned. Yeah. Ephraim is mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I know, I know. So there's various ways, again, there's tons of debate about this. There's various ways of describing the tribes, and, and you'll see that there's no one uniform way to do it in the Bible. The, the 12 tribes are described in, in a multiple different ways. So I don't remember all the reasons for that. There's, there's ways of explaining why John is doing it this particular way. I just can't remember what those, what those reasons are. I don't know if the order is necessarily significant, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, yeah. Again, there, there's way there's ways of, of accounting the tribes and describing them, and, and reasons why they have different names at times, and it all coheres and harmonizes in some way. I just can't remember what what those are. So that that's a good question. I just don't have an answer for you. Right. Right, so there, there's a couple different things kind of going on here. So I probably should have been prepared with that question. Well, he was inspired. Uh, why don't you go sit in the corner? With, think about think about what you're what you've done here. Um, yeah, no, that's good. I, I really don't have an answer for that. So if I think of it, I'll I'll look into that for you. Okay, so let, let's end there in chapter seven. And I was hoping to get through the trumpet judgments, but hey, you know. Getting through chapter 7 isn't too bad. Okay, so now, time for a few questions. Uh, I've got some here. All right. Carlos, I have the package. Nope, that's not a question. (laughs) Okay, chapter 4. Okay, this is a good question. Seven spirits, question mark. In other words, who or what are the seven spirits? Uh, That's a great question. I believe that that is a, a metaphorical a poetic way to describe the Holy Spirit himself. The reason for that is because if you look back in chapter 1, in in John's 
opening benediction, he describes the Father and he describes Christ. And it's really clear that that's who he's talking about. But then he also talks about the seven spirits of God. And so there's, there's every indication that, for, that John, for a theological reason, describes the spirit as the sevenfold spirit of God. So I believe that that's a, a metaphorical, picturesque way of describing the Holy Spirit. And the sevenfold description probably has something to do with you know, the perfection of his attributes or his particular role in, in the plan of salvation. So I believe that's the Holy Spirit. Uh, here's a, another question. Oh, yeah. Uh, who put seals on the scroll and why and who wrote on the scroll? Great questions. I, I believe that the Father himself I believe the Father is the one. And when you look at the big picture of, of the plan of salvation, you can see that the Father is the chief architect of the plan of salvation. He's the one who wrote the script. He's the one who planned the thing, not without the Son and the Spirit, but he is the primary architect of the plan of salvation. So I believe he wrote the, the scroll, the, wrote the plan, planned the plan. He's the one who sealed the, the scroll, as it were. So I think that is from him. Um, Oh, my. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, what is today? What's the date today? Is today the 12th? Oh, okay. That was from last month. Okay, got it. All right. I got a question from this person last time. Okay, so I'm just going to read what they've got here because I'm processing along with you. Uh, okay, so we may not be getting to the end of Revelation tonight, but jumping a few chapters ahead, do you see in, in the chapters in late Isaiah as referring to a Jerusalem on this earth or to a new Jerusalem? I tend to lean towards the second, given the description of the Holy City bride at the end of Revelation. And then it looks like Isaiah, description of what would give this, this person who sent me the question, give indication that the Jerusalem described in Isaiah is the new Jerusalem at the end of the age. Uh, okay, so, uh, sorry, just hang with me here. From your perspective, can this place of everlasting peace described be anything other than the new Jerusalem, the bride, the wife of the lamb? Um, um, okay, so if, if I understand your, your question here... Um, yeah, uh, what is it exactly that Isaiah is describing, and does it correspond with the Book of Revelation? I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to butcher your question. Forgive me. I love you. Um, I'm going to butcher it. I, so thinking about Isaiah, uh, you know, I believe Isaiah is doing a couple different things. Um, I believe much of what Isaiah describes is found in in the Book of Revelation. I believe a majority of what Isaiah describes is a physical global kingdom on the planet. So when I look at chapter 9, when I look at chapter 11, when I look at chapter 27, when I look at chapters 60 and 61, and in many ways chapter 65, what I'm seeing in those chapters is a physical global kingdom that happens on this planet. Now, one of the things that Isaiah does, however, is that in chapter 65, I believe it's in verses 20 and 21, is that he describes a new heavens and a new earth. And, and so he has every prophetic right to mix and mingle his images and to take things that, that are even beyond the kingdom and sort of merge them and together without making a distinction between time periods, if that makes any sense. So I believe that's what, what Isaiah is doing there. And I'm sorry, person who sent me the text, I, I may have missed what your question is with regard to, to Revelation. If you feel so bold, you can ask it out loud for clarification. Jared, what would be the indicators of when you're reading something like Isaiah to show whether it's the, the 
thousand-year reign versus the new earth? Are there some differences? Okay, good question. So Sarah's question is, uh, when you're reading a book like Isaiah, what are some indications within the text that would indicate that it's a thousand-year reign on the earth as opposed to something that is even more futuristic in the new heavens and the new earth? That, that's a great question. Because the, the, the key, and this is very important to keep in mind, is that all throughout the entirety of the Bible are described a time in the future, get this now, the conditions of which are different than they are now, but still are not the new heavens and the new earth in in the far distant future. Does that make sense? There are conditions, there's a time period in which the conditions described are different and better than they are now, but still not the new heavens and the new earth because all throughout Isaiah he describes this time period in which it's, he describes land and people and yet there's, you know, if you look at chapter 11 and chapter 65 he describes there are children he, there, uh, in chapter 65 there are described elderly people and it says that if someone dies at 100 people are like, he died at 100 are you kidding me? Whoa, what was in his life that he died at such a young age? Right, people die at 100 now. It's like, wow, congratulations. Uh, but, but there, so there are conditions described that are different than what we have now, but still not the new heavens and the new earth in which all death will be eradicated. So, so we see all sorts of conditions in a, in a kingdom thing where there are elderly people, there are children, um, because again, people, there, there are still people being born, there are still people who sin. And yet, Christ is on the throne reigning and ruling, I believe, from a throne in Jerusalem. So, so any objections to a, a literal kingdom on the earth has to, the, the, the burden of proof is on them to explain those passages which describe something that's better than we have now, but it's still not the end, be all, end all of the new heavens and the new earth in which death is totally eradicated and, and uh, all things are, are perfect as, as they were created to be. So I don't know if that... That helps. Uh, I just got another question. Um, all right, the 144,000 sealed, is that a literal number? Are these only people saved, uh, the only people saved during the tribulation? Good, good question. Uh, I believe the 144,000 is a round number, but I believe it to be, to be literal. Um, and again, the, the Bible uses round numbers all the time. You know, Solomon had a thousand goats. You know, you see stuff like that all the time. It's like, really? Like a thousand? And, you know, so there's, there's all sorts of round numbers. And uh, I believe, yes, that these aren't the only people saved during the tribulation, but, um, and I don't even know that these are the only Jews saved during the tribulation, but these are a particular special class of people, again, known as the sealed. Again, I don't know the full significance of why these Jews in particular, but they are saved. These Jews are saved during the tribulation. Uh, any, any other questions? We've got a, yeah, go ahead, Charles. Back to chapter 4, the 24 elders. Yes. Different commentators have different determinations of who they are. I know, they do. Yeah, I've gone back and forth on this. I, I used to think they were human beings. Now I'm leaning towards that they're angelic beings. And the reason for that is because every time the elders are described, they're, they're always described. Again, there's 24, so people would say, well, there's 12 
uh, there, you know, 12 uh, um, tribes of Israel and then 12 apostles. Like, well, we have to kind of wedge that in the text a little bit. It doesn't explicitly say. The reason why I lean towards the elders being angelic beings is because every single time they're described, they're always described in conjunction with other beings that are clearly angelic, like the four living creatures, and then there's someone else that's described too. Um, anyway, there's a couple other classes of beings and, and just general angels. And so I lean towards the fact that they are actual angelic beings because they're always grouped with other angelic beings in the text. But again, you know, if you took a different position, I wouldn't draw my dagger, <laughs> stab you in a dark, dark alley or anything. But yeah. So back to the Israel and the 144,000. Yeah. So you were saying that Jews generally are antagonistic towards Christ. So these would only be people who were trusted Christ, correct? Yeah, I believe these are people who they, they get saved during the tribulation. So would you say there is like a future anything for Jews who remain Jews in the future? Uh, I mean like Israel as a nation or? Oh, okay, yeah. So uh, ask the question one more time. I think I know what you're going. But I'm not sure I know what I'm asking. But <laughs> um, like is the future for Israel um, the future of the ones that get saved. Is that synonymous? Or is there something separate for the nation? Are they still the chosen nation? Yes, yes. Okay, great question. Yes and yes, I think, if I understand your question right. The future that God has had planned for Israel will be fulfilled to Israel who believe. So the, so the Israel that, in, that inherits the promises will be believing Israelites. And so when Paul says at the end, all Israel will be saved, he means that all Israel will literally be saved because they will be the ones who believed and, and so all the promises made to Israel will be fulfilled to these, also known as the remnant. The remnant. So yeah, great great question if I, if I understood right. Go ahead. Right, Paul makes that distinction in the book of Romans. Yeah, he says, well, I mean, you know, there's two kinds of Jews. There's ethnic Jews, and then there's eth- ethnic Jews who are circumcised in the heart, and they, they, they trust in Christ, right? So, so Paul makes that distinction. Um, you know, that's when he says, not all Israel are Israel. And he doesn't mean, well, there's Israel, and then there's symbolic Israel, namely the Gentiles. Paul, I mean, there's, you know, you could debate about a couple texts. I think I think the texts are weak to say that any time Gentiles are called Jews, that's just uh, I have a really hard time time believing that. Um, so when Paul, every time Israel is mentioned, it's always referring to ethnic Israel. Again, if you took a different position, it wouldn't offend me, and hopefully I don't offend you. But uh, uh, I think your hand is first, and then go, certainly so, now. Go ahead. What's the, um, is it in Isaiah where it says that the Jews won't even like tell each other about Christ? They won't be like witnessing because they will all know him. Yeah, which I believe will, will take place during the kingdom. So her question is, I, she's, you know, she's saying in Isaiah we see places where Israel says to one another, no, no one will need to say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And I believe that's referring to that kingdom period when they will all be in repentance and, and following, following their Messiah. So basically every ethnic Jew in that time will be converted. Yeah. Yeah, now here's the tricky thing. This is really going to bake your noodle. In the tribulation, there are, there are people, 
So, so Christ is going to return. We are going to be with him. Glorified beings are going to be with Christ. This is, this is crazy, but this does make perfect sense out of the text. What The different dynamics that we see. So when Christ establishes his kingdom, there will be this crazy mix of glorified people and non-glorified people on the planet. You'd think that sounds crazy, but check out Isaiah chapter 65. And uh, so there will be people who will have kids, and and so there is a possible there there will be unbelievers on the earth, even under the reign of Christ. And so you know, hey, you know, make sense out of that. There will still be problems, and yet, yet the, the, kids bring the kids bring problems. Yes, they they absolutely do. Hint, hint. Yeah. <clears throat> no, but you know what? What's interesting, Serlene? I mean, is imagine, imagine that that Jesus Christ Himself is on the throne, ruling all things. So, any injustice or anything that takes place will be dealt with by the rule established by Christ. So the, the perfect king that we all want will be on the earth ruling all things and making all things the way they ought to be. So we'll, I can't wait. So we'll spend tons of time talking about the kingdom. You know, who knows? Maybe if you prevail upon me, we will talk only about the kingdom. We'll devote one night totally to the kingdom describing what that will be like. I saw a hand over here and then here. Go ahead. Totally. Right, right. Because even when Satan is is chained in the abyss and he can't tempt the, tempt the nations any longer, it says uh, there will still be an uprising against the Christ, thinking that they stand a chance. So, so we don't even even if even if Satan were incarcerated right this minute, you know, there would still be unbelievable wickedness on the earth because of, of the human heart. Uh, yeah, Linda. About that this week, and I don't know exactly how true it was, but he was saying our nature before we're saved is so vile that if God didn't hold us in balance, we would all be little Charles Mansons running around. We're, we're that evil. Oh, I'm I'm sure something like that is the case, right? I mean, none of us. Uh, before Christ rescued us, exhibited the full extent of our depravity. Yeah. Right, that, that's true. Because, again, how many people have you did you kill as an unbeliever with your thoughts? Millions. I was a serial killer. I, I, I did so for fun. You know, I pretended to be this... Anyway, I won't tell you that. Um, okay. People that are in hell, if they got an opportunity to love God, they would rather stay in hell. Yeah, right, right. I, I think That's there's no. It's really true because you know I think the reality is we tend to picture people in in hell as being like repentant and like sorry. They're not. They're angry. They're angry. And and yeah, yeah. So it's not like you know you know they're these poor victims. I mean they're they're angry and they hate God even in hell. And so it's. Yeah, it's it's weighty stuff. Well, we we gotta we gotta we gotta slam dunk this thing. So anyway, thank you so much. This is this is really a lot of fun. Again, just so you know, last comment. Uh, you know, inevitably with a book like Revelation, dozens of things are going to be said that maybe you don't 100 percent agree with. That's totally fine. I appreciate you expressing alternative viewpoints. No harm in that. Let's just talk about what the text says. Feel free to do so. I'm not threatened if you take a different position, and I'd love to talk about those with you. Okay, let me pray, and then we'll we'll close. Oh Lord, we are grateful for this book, and it's hard. It's hard work, Lord, and it demands much of us and much mental exertion. And we walk away from two hours talking about this book, and we are exhausted, and yet we are exhausted with joy. 
And Lord, one thing that we all can agree on, O Lord, is that Christ, you rule and reign all things, and one day you will return physically, bodily, and all things will be restored as they ought to be, and and we can't wait for that. And so we look to you, and I just pray that you would cause this book to have its effects on our lives, even at this moment, Lord, that we would trust you and hold fast to you and look to you and cling to you, and that this book would be profound theological filters by which we make sense out of our own lives, O Lord. So help us to live lives of great commission significance in light of the book of Revelation. I thank you so much for this time together. Look forward to how you will work in our lives in the days, weeks, months, years to come, always and only for the glory of Christ. Amen.